It's the Deadline Junkies Screenwriting Podcast with your hosts, Jordan Emiola, Kirsten Porter, and Rand Shammy. Our guest today is Michael Markowitz, writer of Horrible Bosses, Becker, Duckman, and a whole lot more. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's an honor. I mean, it's a distinguished company. Oh, I'm sure any minute you. now you're going to wise up and kick me out of here. <laughs> Not yet. Right. We'll ask you a few questions first. Then, maybe. all right, good, excellent. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, what inspired you to become a writer? It really happened uh, without any participation on my part. It just sort of happened to me. I was I went to to college, Northwestern University, to become an actor. That's what I always wanted to be. I took a brief detour to become a journalist, but I hated it, so I switched to being a theater major. And I auditioned for the improv group there at Northwestern and got in. And it was, it, it remains to this day that the, the 10, the nine most talented people I've ever worked with, including Julia Louis-Dreyfus. And it was just an amazing group. And I fell in love with that. And that led me to auditioning for and writing for the big student review on campus. So I suddenly found myself writing. But still, I had no idea that even becoming a comedy writer was even a job. So. I came out to Los Angeles to become an actor after graduation and was here knocking around for a few years and then decided to go back to Chicago uh, to study at Second City. But before I left, I had written just for fun uh, an episode of Get a Life, which was a Chris Elliott sitcom back in the day. And I didn't know what a spec script was. It wasn't properly formatted. I just wrote it to make my friends laugh and gave it to a couple of them. And then I went to Chicago. I was there for three or four years. What I didn't realize was that the script was sort of getting out. And a friend of mine who worked at Paramount, who I owe everything to, showed it to the uh, producers of Duckman, which was just starting up. And they loved the script. They flew me out and I got a job as a TV writer. So completely accidentally. Completely accidentally. And to show how little (laughs) I knew, I flew out for my interview. They flew me out and I came out and wore a suit and tie to my interview. (laughs) Because what did I know? (laughs) So no suit and tie. (laughs) No suit and tie was ever needed again the rest of my life. And I was really, really lucky because Jeff Reno and Ron Osborne, the creators of Duckman, who were also the, the, uh, they were on Moonlighting. They were the showrunners the first year of the West Wing. They were so, um, they were just the right mentors for me. They believed in me so much and they gave me so much opportunity and they didn't believe in writer's rooms. There were only four of us writing and you would write your script. Everyone would give notes to Ron and Jeff, and then they would give you back the best of the notes and you'd do your rewrite yourself. And you would do this till you had a great script. Then they taught you to direct your own actors, to do your own avid, to do your own mix. So as a result, I was able to go from being a staff writer season one to being one of the showrunners seasons three and four. And it was tremendous. It was television school. I was so lucky. Um, then from there, after Duckman ended, I went to real situation comedy. I went to work on Becker. Um, and that's when I learned that when you're a real sitcom writer, you don't do anything. You just, <laughs> you just sit in a room all day. There's no avid, there's no mix. There's just, you know, it's just 12 people coming up with ideas. So you didn't sit in a room at all for Duckman? No. no. No, we, it was, I mean, we would, we would, we would sit in a room when it was time to discuss and break stories. But after that, we were all just working on our individual stuff. And because there were so few writers, there were only four or five writers through the whole run of the show. We would do everything. I was at one point, you know, working on the show, writing the show and working on, you know, all of these other 
tasks for the show, but then also writing uh, columns as Duckman, doing online. We were the first show to do online chats every week after the show aired. So I was doing that and we were writing all the all the publicity materials, all the promotional materials. We just did. It was really it was an amazing experience. You learned to be a writer, producer, showrunner, marketer. Exactly. And then I went to the, the world of real sitcoms where I became a lunch orderer. <laughs> Were you also writing movies when you were on staff? No, I, I worked at Paramount between Duckman and Becker and then a couple other shows. I was there for 12 years. And after a while, you get tired of being in a writer's room when you're in one for that long because it's, you know, it is, it can be at times like you're a zoo animal and just every day they just throw food in the door and styrofoam trays and, you know, leave you locked up. And so I, I, I thought, well, I could try writing a movie and I'd never written a movie. I'd never actually read a movie script, but I wrote Horrible Bosses. It took about three weeks and then it sold in a couple of days. And then Frank Oz came on to direct and I thought, boy, making movies is easy. Wow. Uh, well, it took seven <laughs> years to get Horrible Bosses made, but uh, it was still a great experience. But that was a, a great experience too, because it, it took all that time. And during that time, and I now realize how lucky I was, during those seven years, I was the only writer on the movie up until the last pass. So it wow. was great because I got to participate all the way through. It was bad because I wrote every conceivable version of Horrible Bosses during that time. <laughs> and what they ended up doing was essentially going back to much of what was in the the first draft after I worked. I worked with Frank Oz for a year on the script. And then what we came up with together was what they ultimately sort of based it on. And that was film school education itself to work with Frank Oz. I mean, that was just incredible. Uh, so it went through a lot of directors, a lot of stars. It was a long time. The studio changed hands. It was amazing. It was a real experience. Every time a star would be interested, the studio would say, oh, you've got to write a version just for this star. And <laughs> they would say, write it, you know, and I'd give, they'd give me all the notes and I'd write the version for that star. And then the star would get the script and go, well, this isn't a script I liked. And we'd be on to the next star. It was a great, it was a great schooling. Wow. How many drafts do you think you wrote? And what was the inspiration? The uh, I would say I wrote easily 30 or 40 drafts during that wow. time. Uh, every conceivable way it could go. It was, but it was fun. It was a great way to, but, but then what happened was, and, you know, having said one day, well, let me write a movie. And I wrote a movie and it sold. So now I'm a screenwriter, but I don't know anything about screenwriting. So when people are talking to me about act structure and all of this, I'm like, mm hmm, mm hmm. I have no idea what they're saying. <laughs> so I'm buying books and reading them and trying to figure out what it is. And I realized if I had read any of those books before I wrote Horrible Bosses, I never would have written it. Because why would I write a movie with three good guys and four bad guys if I knew anything about structure? It's just crazy. Yeah, speaking of the cast, I mean, it has such, you know, an excellent cast. What was your involvement in the casting? I was, uh, my involvement was nothing. I have nothing to do with that cast. Other than that, when I wrote the movie, you always write a movie with, with actors in mind. And I wrote it with Jennifer Aniston and Jason Bateman as the actors in mind for those roles, but they didn't know that. I guess it just, I put it out there uh, in the universe. But no, I was delighted by who they got. It was the, I mean, we went through a lot of casts and the one that ended up doing it was, I think the best possible one and the director was incredible and and you know when you write i'm a big fan of time wasting in scripts 
I, I think when we talk to each other, we waste a lot of time. We don't stay on topic. But in TV and movies, they insist you stay on topic. I hate that. And what I loved about what they did is you cut out all the stuff that wastes time when you're doing the script because you need pages out. But then those actors improvised so much time wasting. They were amazing. It was exactly the sound I wanted it to have. It was, it was great. I unfortunately broke my leg right when filming started, what? which was typically clever of me. So I didn't get to visit the set until the very last day. Wow. On that last day, they were shooting one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And it was pretty much as it was in the original script. The, um, and it was just a pleasure to see that come to life right in front of my eyes. It was like a, a Hollywood fantasy right there. Which uh, scene I, was that? I don't know if you remember the movie, but there's a scene where they confront Kevin Spacey in his home and they're wearing a yep. wire. Yep. But Jason Sudeikis has left the room without <laughs> the recorder and is not there. Yeah. I love that scene. Um, this sounds awesome. immodest to say. I love that scene. I'm brilliant. <laughs> We need to do that more. Yeah. You said you said you wrote the first draft in three weeks. So like, how did you come up with all those creative schemes? Did you dedicate three weeks to just like being locked in a room? No, I well, I, no, I, I wrote it. I, I it sounds like such a cliche, but I wrote it at Starbucks. Um, and I uh, I'm not giving them any of the sh any share of the profits, but I <laughs> what it started was I'm a, I was I based the movie. If it was based on anything, most reviewers got it 100 percent wrong. They said, oh, it's based on strangers on a train which of course it isn't there's one scene where they mention strangers on a train but it's actually inspired by ruthless people um which is one of my favorite movies and the title horrible bosses is meant to emulate ruthless people um and i love ruthless people wasn't was back in the 80s in the heyday of the r-rated comedy which i really missed and i wrote horrible bosses before wedding crashers came out there were no r-rated comedies and i really missed the the crude comedy that I, that I loved in the 80s. So I wanted to write, you know, when you work on a television show and you're in a room and you're pitching jokes, the first joke you pitch, everyone loves because it's the rudest possible joke. And everyone laughs and goes, God, if only we could do that. And then we go on and pitch the real jokes we're gonna use. And I wanted to see if I could write a script where I used only that first joke. And so it was a combination of wanting to do that. And also I'm a giant TV procedural fan and addicted to law and order and uh, CSI, and I, it was all about, I'm obsessed with always thinking about crime and murders. And I thought if I were going to commit a murder, I would, and I never see this in movies, I've seen a lot of Law and Order and CSI, it would inform my decisions of how to go about the killing. So I wanted to have that in the movie. And I also wanted to create a puzzle of, uh, the, the problem I set for myself was, what if you decided to commit a murder but merely just by the act of deciding to do it caused murders you didn't commit. Ooh. The uncertainty principle, sort of. And I wanted to see if that was possible to work out as a plot. And I just started writing and just kept going. And I got, I got very, very lucky. It was it turned out <laughs> terrific. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you've been a showrunner and... Um... Well, I've not been a showrunner, I have to say. I You get to a point where when you get to be co-executive producer or executive producer as a television writer and you want to keep doing what you're doing because it's awesome you get paid a lot of money you sit in a room with a bunch of really talented people you tell jokes and but you get to that level and they're like well now you have to go out and start pitching shows of your own and I'm like but I don't want to do a show. I just want to write but so I have been very lucky to have uh and you kids out there it is possible to have a career where you get to write and never produce 
because you just keep selling <laughs> scripts that don't get made. And it's been Knockwood very lucrative for me, but uh, no, I've not actually run an actual show except for Duckman, which I co-ran co with somebody else. All right. Well, I, I think that could fall under the, the term of being a boss. Oh, good. Thank you. So have you been a horrible boss? No. I Well, <laughs> let me put it this way. I may have been a horrible boss given total free reign, but having people who work around me, I had to keep it in check. Uh, I have not been, I've had horrible bosses and each one of those horrible bosses was based on a real boss. And what I would actually do to while away the time was think about perfect murders for each of them. Do any of them know that it's based off of them? Have they reached out and been like, Hey, I saw your little movie and that was totally me. They have not reached out, but they are extremely thinly disguised. So I'm sure <laughs> they know. Uh, Michael, in your opinion, what are some qualities of a good boss? You know, I think that I don't care if a boss is always nice to everybody. That doesn't matter to me. Like, I'll give you an example. I happen to love Hell's Kitchen. And I recently, a couple of months ago, I binged all of Hell's Kitchen every season. And it was really a lot like a sitcom writer's room. Obviously, Gordon Ramsay is not always a dream to be around. But what's, what he knows, what he, he's the best at what he does. He tells you what it is he wants you to do. He shows you how to do it and then gets mad when you fail. And if I sitting at home can see the lamb isn't cooked, why can't they see it? So a boss doesn't have to be sweet and nice all the time. I only care that the boss treats you like a person, treats you like someone who can succeed and doesn't come there to waste your time. You know, doesn't come there to, to there are some showrunners who use the experience to just sit there and tell you stories of their life, tell you what they do. I worked on one show where we were working seven days a week, you know, 16 hour days. And way back when I first moved to Los Angeles, I worked in the aerospace industry. I was one of thousands of people who worked on the space shuttle. And what was interesting was when I worked on the space shuttle, we went home at six. So I wasn't sure why we had to stay till four in the morning for this piece of crap. But <laughs> the, the showrunner would waste our time telling us about his life. And it was clear he didn't want to go home. That's a bad boss. <laughs> Uh, someone who keeps you there unnecessarily just because he's indecisive or enjoying the room more than his life. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've I've been working as an assistant in writer's rooms for a few years. And in the assistant community, we always ask each other, well, does he like his family? If you know, talking about showrunners. Like, <laughs> that determines when you're going home. <laughs> we came in one Sunday morning. I shouldn't complain. We came in one Sunday morning at 8 a.m. for to work. And he didn't show up till 1030. And he comes in and says, Guess who I saw at the gym this morning? We're like, we don't care. We were here. Yeah. So yeah, good boss doesn't waste your time. He listens to your ideas. He gives you the opportunity to succeed. He treats you like a person. And, and you know, you can come away from it feeling not like you were beaten down by the experience, but feeling like you put in an honest day's work and made some money and did some good. Good answer. Simplistic. I'm a simplistic person. <laughs> So there's horrible bosses too. And I had nothing to do with. Nothing at all. <laughs> nothing at all. Absolutely. Oh, erase all the questions. We, we, yeah. we got nothing more. No. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Absolutely. And you're playing our game. <laughs> uh, how do you feel about it? I've never seen it. Oh. Um, oh. I, it just, it didn't really, it didn't sound very good. 
I didn't, once I found out there was never going to be a three, I said, well, then why do I need to see two? Uh, <laughs> the best is, it's, just, it's much harsher than I would use for horrible bosses too. But it, the best was uh, when Zucker, Abrams, and Zucker were asked why they never saw Airplane 2, which they had nothing to do with. One of them said, well, if your daughter became a stripper, would you go watch her work? Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. It's a fair point. I don't feel that strongly about Horrible Bosses too, obviously, but a lot of talented people went went into making, and I had high hopes for it, um, but it just didn't seem to succeed with people. I mean, don't you think possibly one day they, there might be a Horrible Bosses 3? I hope so. I mean, I, I think I've always thought it would make a great TV series. Um, That's yeah. what I was thinking. Yeah, And I thought it would be a great international TV series because it was unexpectedly popular in other countries. It was not anticipated that it would do well in other countries because, you know, workplace comedies don't usually do. But we, it caught a, a moment when there was, right before it came out, there were all these stories from France of people locking their bosses in their offices out of revenge. And, and in Australia, there were tales of workplace violence. And so it sort of caught a moment uh, when people were just fed up with their bosses. Yeah. And it brings up a point that, that's it's always interesting. When there were a couple of people, everyone got this all along the way. Everyone said, oh, my God, yeah, I see this. But there were just a couple of people who said, will the audience buy that they want to kill their bosses? And I always thought, well, first of all, obviously, yes, everyone understands that impulse. Everyone has ever had a bad job. But there's something else, too, which is, and I think this is a, a, a problem with some notes, is they always want to say, will the audience buy it? Will the audience buy it? The audience saw a commercial that said, hey guys, let's kill our bosses. And they bought a ticket. So clearly they buy the premise. If people <laughs> don't buy the premise, don't go. And it's why whenever you see a heist movie, the first half hour is spent explaining why Nicolas Cage has to steal the cars or the art or the money. It's because they kidnapped a family member and they'll kill that person if he doesn't. And you're sitting there going, I honestly, just, just start heisting. I'm here to see Nicholas Cage yeah. steal stuff. Just get to it. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you need to write the Horrible Bosses pilot and sell it in three weeks. If I owned it, I would. <laughs> oh. I am but a journeyman who goes from place to place. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've written feature films and TV. Is there one you prefer? Do you prefer TV or film? You know, it's funny. It, it, you, you, you think you, you'll enjoy film because you get to stay home, you know, you get to do that thing that writers love to do, which is not be around other people. And, but it turns out that being a writer, especially in movies, you meet a lot of people. I mean, in television too, you end up, when I think of all of the people I've worked with, worked with, met with, worked on stage with, you know, collaborated with, I mean, it's thousands of people in the course of a career. And it's not at all what I anticipated when I just thought it would be me you know, in my study, you know, with my typewriter, it didn't turn out to be that at all. I've met a lot of amazing people. And I like that in film, you get to meet more people, oddly enough. You're not locked up with the same people all the time. Uh, in film, you get to meet a lot of very interesting people and collaborate with a lot of different studios and places. And I've been very lucky. I spent three, four years at Bad Robot and just had the best creative experience of my life. Um, you know, and I would never have had that if I were just in a writer's room. A lot to be said for a writer's room, though. Would you say that your experience with Duckman was more similar to movie writing or TV writing? That you it was unlike anything else because it, it had 
it was animation, first of all, and it was the first, oh God, I sound so old. It was the first television show on the USA Network. Um, so as a result, they let us do pretty much what we wanted. And so we had a great, uh, we had great executives who let us do what we liked, who were, you know, we had great freedom. We had great creativity. We had amazing actors, you know, to work with Jason Alexander is just a treat. And then the guest stars we had every week were just amazing. I mean, I just, I'm so lucky. And, you know, you go from that to, to Becker and working with Ted Danson, the nicest person I've ever met in my entire life. And I've just been so lucky. Is there any good story you have uh, with Becker? Just, you know, we, we, we had, we had an amazing, I mean, amazing writer's room. I mean, it was all stars. Matt Weiner, who created Mad Men, was, was on staff at Becker. Uh, just hysterically funny. And, and Dana Klein and Kate Angelo and a whole bunch of, Russ Woody, a whole bunch of really great writers. And as, as fun as the show was, it felt like we all got to sort of hit doubles instead of home runs. And then Ted Danson would go out and sell the hell out of them. So I feel like we could have done better. We were very lucky to have him. You know, and casting, that's an example where casting is so ideal because Becker was sort of a cranky, uh, non-PC sort of character. But when you have Ted Danson, he's extremely likable. And it's a, it's a good rule for writers, especially, I think, to navigate even today when it's harder to do offensive material. If your character is going to be offensive, make sure the character is either likable or the actor is likable or both. And if the joke is really going to be offensive, make sure it's at the character's expense. So like, if you think like, I always think of like the beginning of Ghostbusters, you know, Bill Murray is introduced to us scamming a girl who's like 15 years younger than he is and randomly electrocuting a kid who has done nothing wrong but to sit there. And any other actor, we would hate that guy, but it's Bill Murray. It's the opposite of save the cat. You know, we love him. Uh, you know, there was, a, I spoke to a bunch of students a few years ago and I showed them a clip from Ruthless People. There's a scene at the beginning of the movie where Danny DeVito is talking to his mistress about his wife, Bette Midler, who he hates. And he's saying, I want to kill her. I hate everything about her. He says the great line, I hate the way she licks stamps. And he's describing how he takes a napkin and he twists it. He says, I wish I could strangle her. I want it to be hands on. And it's a great scene. And I said to the students, I said, now imagine if it weren't Danny DeVito. Imagine if it were James Woods. Well, now it's not funny at all, <laughs> you know. And imagine if he weren't talking about Bette Midler. Imagine if he were talking about Naomi Watts. Well, now I'm not laughing either. So it's really important. You can do anything you want if you have the right character and the right actor. That frees you up to do a lot of things you might not do otherwise. That's my word of wisdom. It's a good word. Thank you. <laughs> I should give credit to Dale Lawner. Zucker Abrams and Zucker directed Ruthless People, and Dale Lawner is the author of the screenplay. For Duckman, that's based on a comic, right? Yes. It was a Dark Horse comic book by Everett Peck. He created how is the that? characters. Oh, so how is that, writing um, a comic into a TV show? Well, the comic existed before the TV show was created. So uh, Reno and Osborne took the comic book characters, and they formed them into a, a TV show and wrote a pilot. And that's what sold. And then they brought on uh, the writers. And so we had we had these these great characters that Everett had created and then had been fleshed out into TV characters by Reno and Osborne. But then we were able to say, you know, I'd like to do a musical number. I'd like to 
you know, have an episode that just breaks format. You know, we we just got to play around and experiment a lot. We had a we had a lot of fun and we always did something that made us laugh. So our our core audience, which back then was very small, but today would be a very big audience, uh, liked it. Nice. And um, what is the difference writing for animation versus live action? Well, for one thing, for live action, you get to change a lot on the fly. You know, for a live action multi-camera sitcom, you're on the floor. And if a joke doesn't work, I mean, you've already written the script several times during the course of the week. But by the time you get to the floor, if a joke doesn't work, all the writers huddle and come up with new jokes. Uh, when you do uh, animation, you have to trust it. You do it and you're gonna, it's going to hit the air in nine or ten months. Back then, it wasn't computerized, it was hand-drawn animation. So it was a long time waiting to see if it worked or not. And then it would air and you'd hope, boy, I hope I made the right decision 10 months ago on this. <laughs> Did you ever stay awake at night just thinking like, oh, I should have done that instead of that one, but I won't 100%. know for another. The only time we ever had, <clears throat> we had a, uh, a joke about a celebrity. And a couple of weeks before the show was to air, that celebrity tragically died. And so it was the only time we ever scrambled and changed something right before, right before air. It was extremely tricky to do, but it was, you know, just the worst things happened to us. The celebrity's death was so inconvenient for us. <laughs> what? I'm really what was sorry. the trick? Was it like a new joke? Yeah, we had to come up with a, with a new joke. joke. It was like, cut, cut this. And no, we put up, came up with a new joke involving a different, more lively celebrity. Did you have more to vivacious. The drawing, or could you pretty much? It had to match. It had to match roughly the same amount of time. It, it's very hard to do animation because what happens is you get the animation back, and it's always terrible because it, at that time it was done by a Korean studio who that week, let's say Disney sent them a whole bunch of stuff to animate, and we would get the worst animators they had. <laughs> so we would get back footage that made no sense at all, and so you only have a limited amount of budget to say, no, you got to do this over again. And what you can't do over, you have to make fit. So you end up trying to build, you know, you, you try to build 32 frames into a second that you can match to a lip movement. It's all very complicated, but it's a fun puzzle. And you can be really proud of the result when it comes out. And I'm very proud that an episode of Duckman that I did was the first ever TVMA animation. Oh, wow. My career in offensiveness nice. is guaranteed. Nice. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> My legacy. I hate to inform you that the process of animation these days is pretty much exactly the same as you described it. Really? Yes. That's so disappointing. <laughs> Nothing has changed. Come on, folks. <laughs> come on. We've got, we've, Amazon has a robot dog and we can't come up with a better way of doing animation. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, come on, America. Next century, maybe. <laughs> um, and I don't mean to, be, you know, I don't mean to, 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 sneer at the the Korean animators who were kind enough to do the art for us. I'm sure they did their best. Now I feel well, guilty about animators from 25 years ago. No, I'm sure you know this, but they get paid per frame. So if it's a frame with like a thousand things in it, or if it's like a circle, they will allocate the same amount of time to drawing both those things because it's the same money. Interesting. It always made me wonder why, and this happened quite a bit, Duckman's bill would come walking across the room without Duckman. I think really, no one <laughs> noticed this. And you just write a scene about him being invisible. No, that's where you spend your money. <laughs> invisible Duckman. Hold on, just a second. 
<laughs> they, they, we all, we always pray that Duckman will come back. We always pray that it is the only '90s animated show that is not coming back. And we always are like, come on, man, Duckman, bring us back. We're ready. It's so funny that we yeah, everybody yeah. who worked on it has this passion, and we still love the the character. Jason Alexander would love to do it again. Uh, we just keep waiting for the call. Well, once they hear this podcast, it will have a Netflix special. That is why I'm here. Th that is my shameless plug. Oh, yeah. All about document. I'm here to beg. <laughs> awesome. What was your experience on Kelsey Grammer Presents the Sketch Show? Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was extremely limited. I was hired by the show to go to England and do the show with them. And naturally, I couldn't go. Uh -huh. So I worked entirely remotely. Again, pioneering, working remotely. Uh, so I did not get, my dream is to work in England. I did not get to do it. But I only, you know, polished sketches, wrote some other sketches, sent them in. It was just a very limited thing. In that situation, could you be like, I bought my own ticket. I'm going. Bye-bye. I could have, but I uh, there was something I had to tend to here in Los Angeles. I couldn't be away. I, believe me, I would have loved it. A, f a free trip to England would have been just perfect. And I had worked with uh, Kelsey. He produced another show I worked on. He was very, very nice. Very, uh, he was a very kind man. Uh, well, I have a question for you. Do you yeah. have a writing routine or habit? And also, you mentioned a writing partner. Uh, do you work together all the time, sometimes? And what's that workflow? Well, this is, a, this is the amazing miracle of my life. Because I worked alone for... 25, 28 years. And after a while, you get to where, you know, you, you start to get a little tired and you think, have I written my last word, you know? And then it, it finally, I, I finally got smart and I realized that my best friend, Mary Gallagher, uh, who's an amazing stand-up comic, well, why don't I just write with Mary? We're together all the time. So we write together now. We've been writing together for two years now and we're working on a couple of projects and we have a couple of things that are working that we're really proud of. And she's just incredible. And she inspires me so much. She is, you can, when she, about three years ago, she'd been a stand-up for years. And three years ago, she said to me, in six months, I'm going to be on Colbert. And I was like, oh, good luck with that. You know. <laughs> uh, well, six months later, she was on Colbert. You can Google it, Mary Gallagher Colbert. She was terrific. Uh, and, you know, so she inspires me every day. And when most days I would rather not write, I hate writing, but she makes me do it. And as a result, I have a great time and I love what we're writing. Thank you, Mary. Yes, absolutely. I'm, in, I'm uh, inherently lazy. I would much rather be binge watching everything, but, but thank you, Mary. She's amazing. Who's your favorite showrunner that you work with? Uh, Reno and Osborne, no question. They were, they were terrific. I mean, just incredible, uh, you know, and, and uh, that they were able to keep this. It's, you know, a, a show like Duckman is so creative and such a sort of wild horse galloping away and they were able to corral it and keep it going. And it was just, I was really impressed. I'm always impressed with them. They're terrific guys. They're terrific writers. They were the ones who wrote the, um, I don't know if you're Moonlighting fans, but there was an episode that was uh, Shakespeare. It was all an iambic pentameter. It was the Taming of the Shrew and it was just, it's historic. Uh, and they're just incredible writers and incredible showrunners and taught me much of what I know. Well, you already gave Thanks. us wonderful word of wisdom, but do you have some more? Anything um, that's like your favorite advice to give anyone? Well, you know, I was lucky growing up that there were always 
my, my house growing up was full of books and I read a lot. And my best advice is read a lot, watch a lot of television, watch a lot of movies, get to know the flavor of words, the way they taste in your mouth, the way they sound on your ears and get to know the sound of television. You know, there's a, there's a music to TV and you, and it sounds like I'm speaking in some weird new age speak, but if you ever saw a movie where characters are watching in the background, there's a TV with uh, a sitcom or a newscast um, or a talk show, you know, when you, when it's not right, because it does, the music doesn't sound right. And that's the music of, of television. That's the sound of TV. And you can break that format. There are shows, of course, that break that format. But if you're going to work in the traditional forms, like multi-camera, get to know how television sounds. And then you're in a better position to break that music, come up with new tunes and new rhythms. And I, I found I love watching shows from other countries. Uh, I just, that's amazing to me because it's like there's this whole for someone who loves television and grew up watching a lot of television suddenly now there's an infinite amount of television i mean we think there's an infinite amount of television in america well obviously there's infinite amounts of television everywhere it's just it's an incredible time for people who love tv and the more you watch tv the more you see movies the more you appreciate movies the, the better writer you'll be and this is a real nerd power tip but when you see a movie or you binge watch a series, then go to Wikipedia and read all about what you just saw and the struggle to make it and how it was put together and who was in it and where they filmed it and let that take you down a couple of rabbit holes and you'll just appreciate what you've seen a lot more. At least that's true for me. I love that. I think that's great. Um, I do think it's interesting you say to read. What specifically are you talking about? Because you said you hadn't read all those books about writing and how to write and writing structure. So what books would you well, suggest? I would suggest if you're interested in books about writing, the the three that I've enjoyed far and away the most are, and I'm not the first one to say this, On Writing by Stephen King, uh, and two books by, and I apologize, I've never heard his name spoken aloud, so I'm going to mispronounce it terribly, uh, the brilliant Javier Griot, Griot Marchoit. Um, he wrote two books it's that beautiful. are amazing. I, he, I hope that he forgives me for that pronunciation. And for, I, uh, assuming his pronouns are he and him, and I've probably offended him now twice, but um, he is just, he wrote two amazing books about writing that just really inspired me. And, but in terms of, I, I find reading Stephen King inspires me. There's, you know, my favorite movie, one of my favorite movies of all time is a movie, a very old movie that I'm sure nobody has ever seen called, it's a mad, 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 mad world. It was a movie from 1963 that had literally everyone in comedy in it, a gigantic comedy. And again, I don't know how to fit it into a three act structure because it's three hours and 45 minutes long and has 20 characters and no antagonist, right? I mean, it's yeah. how do you fit that in? But it was about the idea is that these tourists come upon an accident scene and are told there's $350,000 buried in essentially Santa Monica. And they break every law in the book trying to be the first one to get to Santa Monica to find the money. And it says that these average, ordinary, law-abiding citizens having this dangled in front of them would then throw out every bit of morality they ever had, would steal and kill to get there. And Stephen King has explore this in my two, my two favorites of his books, not anyone else's, Needful Things and Under the Dome. 
which are both about how it takes just a tiny little push for the fabric of our society to sort of crumble. And I think it's something we're seeing now as we got a big push from the pandemic that suddenly all the social niceties have just fallen by the wayside. I, I was used to kid, when you cross the street, you look around and you see 20 cars and you are trusting those drivers not to gun the ignition and kill you. And those are 20 people you wouldn't ask to hold your wallet while you went into the bathroom. But you trust them with your life because we have a social contract, but that's all falling apart now. And so that's what fascinates me. And so you read something that's unrelated. You watch a movie that's a 1963 comedy or you read two Stephen King books and suddenly you start to see the pattern between them. You start to see the ideas in them and it can inspire you as it's inspired me on a couple of things I've written, just that idea of our social fabric that, that we have, we think we're very important, but from a certain distance, we're ants on a log. And if you set that log on fire, we sure scurry a lot. Yeah. It's been a great time for me. The, the, I'm the only person for whom the pandemic represented no lifestyle change at all. <laughs> I, if you remember the old Twilight Zone episode where Burgess Meredith just wants to be left alone to read. So after a nuclear attack, he finally can read. That was me. Oh, no one is, everyone's letting me read and watch TV. This is heaven. <laughs> I mean, I obviously hundreds of thousands of people died and I'm a terrible person for saying that. And I apologize. Please edit that out. Oh, there's so much we have to edit out of this. Oh my God. It's going to be a five minute episode. Well, you know, but it's, it's bite size. It's a fun size episode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for Halloween. Yeah, totally. Michael, you mentioned you were working on a few projects. Anything you can share or is it too early or? It's too early. I will say that I that what we're working on right now, we're working on something that's 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 moving ahead and one thing that's on spec. And the thing that's on spec, this is proof that you don't need to know screenwriting format to be a screenwriter, because I'm still puzzling as we write this script, which has a million auto chases in it, how to write auto chases. It is impossible to keep writing interior car, exterior car, exterior road <laughs> to come up with, you know, Stephen King and on writing says, don't use thesauruses, just use the vocabulary you have. But we have run out of ways to say roaring, thundering, speeding, screeching, <laughs> screaming. I mean, it's just how many ways can you say that a car goes fast? It's really <laughs> hard. <laughs> Was there any passion projects that didn't get produced? Anything you sold? that just you haven't hasn't been made yet yeah there, well there was one i did right after horrible bosses for new line that never went and i loved this script and i wish someday uh, it will be you know perhaps posthumously uh resurrected it was i don't think it would today but it was a script called boob job and it was about a guy who who his girlfriend asks if she should get a boob job and of course the right answer is no of course not but he says yes and i'll pay for it and she gets a boob job and it ruins his life. Uh, and it was exploring all that. It was a puzzle again. How can some your girlfriend's new boobs make your life completely go to hell? And I, I actually loved it a lot, but we never quite got it together. Um, and there was another a pilot I wrote for Sherry O'Terry and uh, that I did with J.J. Abrams that, that I still think is amazing. It was a, a my favorite TV show comedy show, perhaps of all time, except for The Simpsons, was Police Squad. Again, I've said Zucker Abram Zucker a lot in this interview, but uh, the TV show that inspired the Naked Gun movies. And this was my sort of Naked Gun TV show. It was a spoof of those forensic investigator A&E shows. 
Um, and it was a lot of fun. It was fun to play with, again, that language, that rhythm that those shows have, because they're all the same. Nobody suspected the dumpster was full of bones. You know, it was fun to play with all of that. And I was really a great script and I wish that it had gone. It didn't. Hidden treasures, they will all go into my memoirs. Wait a minute, I have nothing left for the memoirs. I've given it all away here. <laughs> so I will say that it's fun to hear, you know, talking about the music of television, I, that, you know, discovering shows from other countries is incredible. There's a show called Line of Duty that is a BBC show done in Belfast. I think it's BBC, done in Belfast about, it's a, it's a, a very intricate show about a police anti-corruption unit. There's this great Belgian show on Netflix called Into the Night, the most exciting thriller I've seen. And, uh, you know, it's up there with, with uh, Money Heist. I mean, it's just fun to hear different languages and different rhythms. And it's just, anyway, I love TV. <laughs> awesome. I get that. I get that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's much cheaper than traveling. True, <laughs> but still time consuming. Yeah. Uh, so you love TV and this whole journey started from acting. Are yeah. you acting at all now? Do you do anything? No, this whole writing phony baloney operation was supposed to be a Trojan horse to get me parts and things. And it never worked out that way. Everyone was always like, you should play this part. And I've only done a couple of parts and, and you know, had a lot of fun doing it, but it just never, you know, what am I going to do? <laughs> I always wanted to play a judge. Judge is the best part. You get to sit. You wear a roomy outfit. Any judge. Yeah. You get to look thoughtfully at people as they talk. Yeah. I would love to be a judge on Law and Order. That would be awesome. All right. I'll be back and I'm ready. So we have Deckman coming back, uh, Boob Job that we're going to be. Yeah, I'm sure Boob Job and, is over uh, today. You'll yep. be a judge in Boob Job or That's Deckman. Right. That's what I'm Absolutely. <laughs> I have high hopes. I have dreams. Don't limit me. No. Never. Never. I have wings and I can fly. <laughs> uh, Michael, our last question for you tonight. For um, all the marbles. <laughs> what shows are you watching now that you'd recommend and or what are your favorite shows of all time? All right. Well, I've, I've discussed the couple that I've been, I watched. Yeah. Day one, I watched Squid Game, and of course, love that. And uh, I love Into the Night. I love Line of Duty. Love Money Heist. Um, my favorite shows of all time are, I don't watch a lot of comedy, because after the great comedies of The Office, Seinfeld, 30 Rock, Parks and Rec, everything but The Simpsons just doesn't sort of work for me anymore. Um, the Simpsons still works for me. I'm one of the... I'm a Simpsons fan who still watches The Simpsons. Wow. People are like, oh, I'm a Simpsons fan too. I go, yeah, I still watch it. Like, really? <laughs> I'm not sure how you can say you're a Simpsons fan. I haven't watched it in 20 years, but okay. Um, I love The Simpsons. I love I love reality television. Right now, I'm binging old Survivor seasons. Uh, I love, uh, uh, you know, there's a certain kind of... I love Amazing Race. Um, there's a lot to recommend on television. I love British <laughs> procedurals. Oh, give us one. Give us one. Well, this line of duty is incredible. It, oh, yes. it has a different arc every year, and, and then they sort of all add up. It's incredible. And there's a great sitcom that people might not have heard of from a few years ago, from, well, 10 years ago, uh, with um, Hugh Bonneville from Downton Abbey and um, Olivia Coleman, uh, narrated by David Tennant. It's a show called 2012, uh, The Words 20 and 12. It was a, 
uh, uh, like The Office, a documentary about the people putting together the London Olympics for 2012 and all the headaches and problems they run into. It's really funny. And they did two seasons of it. And then they did a spinoff series called W1A, which is the postal code for the BBC about the people working then at the BBC and all the nightmares they go through. If you've never, if you like The Office UK, I recommend those highly. Good. Now I have shows to watch. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My big problem is I can't watch shows that are, when shows come out, I can't watch them. If they come out week to week, I have to wait until they're all out and then sit down and watch them in one big gulp. <laughs> I can finally watch yeah. Ted Lasso now because it's all out. <laughs> Great way to consume. Right. Yeah. Divinity's on. And then there's shows that aren't meant to be watched in one sitting, and but I still do. Like, Handmaid's Tale is not meant to be watched three seasons in one sitting, you know, but I did. And you watched that all in a row and you didn't have a, a midlife or whole life crisis. No. Well, the worst was when I watched, I can't believe I'm saying, admitting this, but I watched 20 seasons of Law and Order SVU all in a row. And I was afraid to go out of the house. Uh, you know, there was a pervert behind every bush as far as I was concerned. But when you watch Handmaid's Tale, all in a row like that, you realize she is a brilliant, brilliant actress and is giving the performance of her lifetime. But Elizabeth Moss waits for every line about 30 seconds. Someone says something to her. She waits. She stares. She turns. She walks. She answers. Then they say something else. She waits. She turns. And you know, it's, it's not meant to be watched one after another, so you wouldn't ordinarily notice that. Right. I actually also couldn't leave my house after nine seasons of Criminal Minds. Criminal Minds, man. I'm telling you, I wish I could tap into, they came up with so many ways to torture women that would never occur. I don't know how you even access that part of your mind that comes up with all those awful things they do to women on that show. And don't you find when you watch, it's no longer on, but when you watch Criminal Minds, I'm gonna now. I'm, now I'm hot take. I don't like Garcia because there's a woman who's in a pit, and the acid is filling the pit up to her knees. And Garcia is like, "You've reached the digital princess of all technology. Please do my bidding." And I'm like, Garcia, let's get to it. Someone's <laughs> life at stake, right? <laughs> She's always got a lot of quips going, but someone's life is in danger. Can we get a move on? <laughs> yeah, good point. But good that point. is a very, that was a, I really was addicted to that show. And my good favorite show. CSI was CSI Miami. So that tells you a little bit about me. <laughs> is that one still going? Or are they still making that? No, stop all of them? sadly, no. But it was, it was like opera. The others were TV. That was opera. It was grand. When you, when you watch that back to back, you'll notice the main guy always does whenever he has anything, <laughs> he does a look with his glasses, then he'll pull his glasses down and look over his glasses and then deliver the line. Oh, there is a great supercut of all of those put together that you can find on YouTube. It is amazing. <laughs> and I wrote a CSI Miami scene into the first draft of Horrible Bosses, uh, hoping for a David Caruso cameo. And it was indeed that very sort of moment uh, someone was murdered doing our town at a community theater and a cop says and they're on the stage and the guy's lying there and a cop says ah, they do this play all the time and he went and now it's been done to death 
<laughs> there's a there's an elegance to that. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, yeah. we, don't, we don't have yeah. any questions for you, Michael, but if you have questions for us, we're happy to answer them. Well, I just can't believe you're still going to be, you know, putting me on this show full of esteemed writers. And then you got my hokey act coming out here. Oh, no, we're so happy to have you. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah. Subscribe, rate, and review for more episodes. Thanks for listening to the Deadline Junkies Screenwriting Podcast.